Hello. We had a problem with our recording uh, Monday night, and so uh, it didn't record, ran out of memory, and so uh, in order to keep up, uh, I'm doing this recording uh, separately. So this may end up being a little bit shorter as we cover the same amount of material as we did on Monday night. Uh, we are in uh, the end of John 14, uh, starting with verse 27, and let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, give us the peace that the world cannot give. Set our hearts at rest with the peace that you give us individually as we know who we are, as your dear children through Christ, as we know our sins are forgiven, and as we know you have prepared a place for us when this life is done. So set our hearts at peace with these words of promise and grace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, we're starting with verse 27. And this is one of those very familiar passages to us. Uh, Jesus says, we're still in the upper room uh, Thursday night, and uh, at the beginning of John 14, Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. And this is saying the same thing, but from a different angle. Uh, the opposite of trouble is peace. So Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let it be afraid. You have heard me tell you, I am going away and I am coming to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. Think just about verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Think just of that phrase. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What kind of peace does the world want to give? Uh, well, thinking in terms of history, from about 100 BC to about 400 AD, there was something called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And what kind of peace was that? Well, as the Romans ruled their empire and kept the peace, they did it with the exercise of brute force. Uh, that's why crucifixion was their punishment for non-citizens. Let's keep the people afraid. Let's frighten them into obedience. And historians have said that's the reason why their main spectator sport was gladiators, people hacking away at each other with swords in the arena so that they would keep up that image of ruthlessness. 
if they're marching into northern Germany or marching into Gaul, uh, the people they were about to conquer would be afraid. We've heard what these people do for entertainment. You wouldn't believe it. They're cruel. They're ruthless. And that's how the Romans kept their peace. Uh, an old prayer. Uh, an old Latin prayer, and it comes to us, and it's in our worship materials, it comes to us through the Book of Common Prayer. It says this, O God, from whom all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works do proceed, give unto us, thy servants, that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey thy commandments, and that also by thee, being delivered from the fear of our enemies, we may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's based on this scripture. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus gives us his peace individually as he gives us his gospel. As he tells us individually our sins are forgiven. Remember the guy lowered down through the ceiling. What was the first thing Jesus said to him? Cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. Think of the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the peace that the world cannot give. That's the peace that he gives to you and me. You're a child of God. even if there's a coronavirus out there. You're a child of God, even if your guy lost, or even if the other guy won the election. You're a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's the peace that the world cannot give. The world likes to try to give peace, not just the Roman way, uh, by forcing people into uh, a peace with with brutality, uh, the world also likes to maintain peace or give peace by trying to satisfy us. And I've said many times, in our world and in our culture, we are trained very well to covet. Every commercial promises you this thing, whatever it is, will make you happy. This thing, whatever it is, is the solution to your problems. And admittedly, I do not watch hardly any commercial TV anymore. I just remember the good old classic commercials. So you deserve a break today. Have it your way. And oh, what a feeling to drive a Toyota. The world is trying to give people peace, trying to satisfy their desires. And very often it happens this way. You buy the latest and greatest thing and you it comes in the mail and you open the box and you say, is that it? Is that all there is? Is that what I spent hundreds of dollars for? It's smaller than I thought. It doesn't do what I thought. Jesus does not give us peace. He does not give us satisfaction the way the world tries to give us peace and satisfaction. 
At the end of verse 27, Jesus repeats the same thought in the first verse of chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. And he adds, do not let it be afraid. And again, we remember, this is Thursday night. Terrible things are going to happen in an hour or two as Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane. Even worse things are going to happen tomorrow when Jesus is crucified. And, uh, and what's going to happen with those disciples Easter Sunday afternoon and evening? They are going to be troubled. They're going to be hiding behind locked doors. Uh, now, go back to the beginning of chapter 14. After Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, he then says, I am going to prepare a place for you. And here Jesus says, I am going away and I am coming to you. If you love me, you'd be glad I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Uh, this is very much a recap of the idea. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. I will take you to be where I am. Uh, that's just a repeat of that thought. Now we've got a thought uh, that may challenge our view of the Trinity. At the end of verse 28, Jesus says, The Father is greater than I. Uh, the Athanasian Creed, the two-pager that uh, in some of our churches is read on Trinity Sunday, says, uh, that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are co-equal in might, uh, just as the Father is eternal, uh, Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal, none is, is greater or lesser than the other. Here Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. And there's a reason for that. Jesus is here talking about uh, one of the themes that we've had again and again and again is Jesus says, I have come here to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, in his human nature, Jesus displays obedience to his heavenly father and his heavenly father's plan. In that sense, the father is greater than he. Uh, elsewhere, Jesus said, I and the father are one. At the same time, Jesus has an obedience to his Father. Another thing that this points to is uh, that there is an order to the Trinity. doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are unequal in any way. It does mean that there is an order to the Trinity. The Son is begotten of the Father. And if you think of uh, Luther's explanation in the Creed, begotten of the Father from eternity. And then the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, and so the whole Trinity has its source in the Father, but at the same time we remember 
God is completely eternal, completely outside the realm of time. And so how the whole Trinity can have its source in the Father, but at the same time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completely equal, uh, that's beyond us, beyond our understanding, because we are finite beings who live in time. For the sake of understanding this verse, we remember the Son is begotten of the Father. Uh, Jesus, the Son, has a sense of obedience to his Father. The Father is greater than I. Uh, another uh, theme that we've had again and again is the cluelessness of the disciples. The disciples don't understand something. Uh, but then when it happens, then they do. Or later, they remember something. And so Jesus talks about that here. He said, I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not speak with you much longer, because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. But I want the world to know that I love the Father, and that I am doing exactly what the Father has instructed me. Um, verse 30 has uh, a couple phrases in it that remind me of Martin Luther. Uh, in Luther's morning and evening prayer, both of them say, let your holy angel be with me so that the wicked foe may have no power over me. Jesus says, the devil has no power over me. As many devilish things as are going to happen in, uh, in the evening of Thursday, later in the evening of Thursday and then all day Friday, many devilish things are going to happen. Much harm is going to come to Jesus. Yet what does he say here? The devil has no power over me. Think of that other theme that we've talked about. When we get into the Passion history in John, we have to ask again and again, who's really in control here? Jesus willfully goes to suffering. The devil might think he's in control. He may be manipulating Judas, Judas and the chief priests. Uh, and as Jesus comes to great harm, Jesus says, the devil has no power over me. That reminds me of Luther's famous hymn, where he says, this world's prince may still scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. Why does Jesus call the devil the ruler of this world or the prince of this world? He calls him the prince of this world because the devil does indeed have great influence over the world. And we think of the time in which he said it, the Roman Empire controlled much of the world with force and cruelty. And we look at the world that we live in now, and we see the devil's work in culture. We see it in politics. 
We see it everywhere. What does Jesus remind us? The ruler of this world is coming, but he has no power over me. The ruler of this world does what he wishes, but he can't harm God's people. Much harm will indeed come to God's people. We think of Christians who suffer martyrdom around the world. We think of Christians in China who uh, are being told, you have to use this Bible. Uh, you can't have uh, a cross because that's a sign of competition with the government. You can't worship openly. Uh, yeah, Christians come to great harm, but Jesus says they can't pluck them out of my hand. Verse 31, I want the world to know that I love the Father and I'm doing exactly what the Father has instructed me. There is that theme again. I've come to do the will of him who sent me. And then at the end of verse 31, Jesus says, get up, let's leave this place. Who's in charge? Who's in control? Even though he knows what's going on, what's about to happen, he goes forward anyway. He's in really the one in control of the pacing of what's happening. Uh, he goes forward anyway to carry out his mission. Okay, now let's continue with John chapter 15. Uh, a couple chapters ago, uh, oh, this is going back to John chapter 10 when we were talking about Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. We talked a little bit about metaphor and uh, allegory and different figures of speech. And in John 15, uh, Jesus uses uh, a metaphor of a vine uh, and he uses it in two ways. First to talk about pruning, and then second to talk about connection. But in the first verse, Jesus does something with metaphor that only he can do. And he kind of turns the whole idea of metaphor on its head. Uh, metaphor usually works like this, like the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. What that really means is, the Lord is a lot like a shepherd in the way he cares for his people. And you get rid of the word like, then that means the Lord is exactly like a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, so the Lord is a lot like a shepherd. Or Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am a lot like a shepherd in the way I care for my people. Uh, in John 15, when Jesus talks about the vine, with one word, he flips the metaphor on its head. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. By saying the true vine, Jesus is flipping everything on its head. I am the original vine, and every vine with branches and grapes is a lot like me. That's what the word true means. I am the true vine. I am the original vine. Uh, and uh, there are two things 
in these verses in this chapter. Uh, the first is about pruning. Uh, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. Uh, the alternative translation there is vine dresser. Uh, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he is going to cut off, and he prunes every branch that does, does bear fruit so that it will bear more fruit. Um, this is both law and gospel. The law is he prunes every branch that does not bear fruit and cuts it off. Repent or perish. But also there's grace here. God doesn't just chop off every branch. He prunes some branches so that they will be even more fruitful. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Uh, Martin Luther had an interesting illustration for this verse. And I'm, it'll be in the handout in full, but I'll just paraphrase it here. He said, if a, if a grapevine could talk, what would it say to the vine dresser, to the gardener? What are you doing with those clippers? You're chopping bits of me off, and then you're taking a rake, and you're, you're, you're poking around at my roots, and then you're taking manure, and you're putting it around the stock of the, of the, the roots. Uh, why are you doing such a thing? And really it's for the good of the plant, to make it even more fruitful. Uh, uh, the, like the vine would not understand, so we don't understand very many, very often when we have some loss or something that ends up getting cut out of our lives that we might like very much. Uh, God has his wisdom. Uh, God has his purpose to make us even more fruitful. Then the second part, uh, the second theme, talking about vines and branches, is talking about remaining uh, in him. Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I am going to remain in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Likewise, you cannot bear fruit unless you remain in me. Then verse 5 says exactly what verse 4 says, but verse 5 is more familiar to us. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him is the one who bears much fruit. Because without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's th thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you continue to bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Uh, here Jesus is speaking about our dependence on him. And I think that's kind of a, a hard concept for us because we like to be independent. We like to come up with our own ideas. We like to be self-sufficient. Uh, but Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, 
the old Sunday school hymn says, we are weak, but he is strong. And so Jesus reminds us of that here. Without me, you can do nothing. That's a great comfort to us when we feel weak. Jesus is our source of strength. We are the branches. He is the vine. That's as far as we got on Monday night, and so we'll pause here and we'll pick it up next week.